welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I am eager to hear about our sponsors. Okay, well that's good. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available at Mubi is a film that you and I both love, David. I don't know if our guest loves it probably not is everything good here what's going on that's no, fine okay um sorry uh technical not even diff- technical curiosity you know, it everybody. sounds fine but it is working it is looking weird okay but it sounds fine so who cares so uh yeah so available movie is is a film that you and i both love which is which is uh fritz lang's scarlet street oh yeah which uh cheapers johnny yeah. Well, and uh, there's so much. First off, it stars Edward G. Robinson mm-hmm. in uh, the type of character that we are not used to seeing him in, which is this very henpecked type yeah. of character. And just a there's he's almost pathetic, I would say. Yeah. Um, we've seen that type of character in film noir before, but you can't I can't imagine him playing it, but he plays it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then is it Dan Duria who plays, I don't, I don't know, know how the you name say of the his character. Name, but he's a great actor. Yeah. And he plays a very delightful villain with a straw hat and he calls his girlfriend lazy legs, which is weird. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it is, I think probably one of the, you know, it's Fritz Lang. So obviously there's a really wonderful command of tone, but it is, I think one of the more fatalistic, uh, films more that I've seen. And I, I do absolutely love it. Um, I think I might have reviewed it for the website, uh, or it might've been you. I don't remember. I think I got the Blu-ray and reviewed it for the site. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, so Scarlet street is available on movie along with a number of other films, including, uh, uh, Jane Campion's, uh, the piano. Uh, and those are the only two I can think of off the top of my head. I do apologize. Uh, but there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship. That's the key. Slash Battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Um, these things, not only do they sound great, we've established professional mm-hmm. quality they look great yeah you'll feel good about yourself yeah. walking down the street with a pair of tweaked audio earbuds in your ear yeah you look at them and you think what is this the future yeah exactly. unless of course you get the the wood ones in which you think how rustic uh-huh. i feel like i'm uh, abe lincoln listening to earbuds in his log cabin you know? uh yeah right yeah. with all the fidelity that he um <laughs> never enjoyed exactly um uh, and they're available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. Um, but if you put in the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What? Let's get into it, shall we? Okay, yeah. 
by into it, I mean, let's introduce our guest. Okay. Our guest is our, uh, he's one of our favorite people to have on the show, right? Yeah. He's, I mean, uh, I don't want, at the risk of this going to his head, he's essentially the third chair. He's the third member of Battleship Pretension. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is our editor at large, Scott and I. It's only because a lot of other people can't come here as often as I can, right? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> Let's say that. And I love Scarlet Street. It's my favorite Fritz Lang film. Is that true? That is a fact. It might. Hmm. I do love M, obviously, but, yeah. uh, and I also like, uh, the big heat. Yeah. Big heat's uh, good. but Scarlet Street, I think is, uh, rocketing up the charts. It's, I, I always want to be like, uh, I always feel the pressure to be the guy who picks like the unconventional pick, but it's like, it's, I think Metropolis is. It's, it's pretty great. so great. Yeah. <laughs> I, had a, I had a hard time finding a Fritz Lang film that I like more than Metropolis, but Scarlet Street's up there. Uh, my also work. big fan of Die Nibelungen. Oh, which I never saw. Oh, I don't care for that. Um, really? Yeah. It's got a, that one great battle sequence, and then it's like four hours of fantasy <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, you watch it in two sittings. Well, I watched it about five. <laughs> Why do you hate uh, fantasy? Uh, it's just boring swords and kings and kingdoms and legacies. And I, I don't care. Oh, that's okay. That's not for you. Interesting. Uh, my company Christmas party was at a bar that had uh, TV screens and, uh, playing on the TV screens was metropolis. Uh-huh. And so this was great for me because I didn't have to talk to my coworkers instead. <laughs> and I could follow the film. Yeah. Perfectly uh, which normal was great. thing to do at a party is just watch the film they have playing in the background. For me, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. But yeah, and I do know that uh, uh, I've not I've not yet put out um, as of this recording. I haven't yet put out our end of the year battleship pretension survey, which is a uh, demographic, but also people can weigh in on the guests they really like yeah. and, and the features they really like. Uh, but I know that in the past, Scott ranks up there very high with uh, with well, guests like uh, Josh Fatum and uh, Amy Nicholson and others. So people who are too busy to be here all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of um, end of the year, which by the way, you got to get that survey out. It's, yeah, it's 2017 know. now. This is well, considering that our end of the year uh, goes well into uh, uh, February, February yeah. all the way to the end. Yeah, actually. If, you, if you're, if you're new to uh, battleship retention, we, um, well, let's, let's get to, this is the first battleship retention proper episode that's being recorded in 2017. Yes. Uh, last week's came out in 2017, but this is the first one they're recording in 2017. And so we are starting our roughly month and a half to two months of, uh, wrap up of the yeah. year before, because this is, it's for, if, if I know I say this every year, but if you're new to the podcast, there's many reasons why we do it this way. Uh, for one thing, award season and discussion about the best movies of the year continues right up until the Oscars. And so there's no reason, uh, to move on right away. Also, traditionally, uh, especially with your major studio release schedules, there's less, um, you know, of note being, uh, released into theaters, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the early part of the year. I mean, I already have scheduled my, uh, uh, press screening of the bye bye man. So I'm sure that'll be, um, talked about, (laughs) um, at the end of starring, uh, front of the show, Doug Jones and written by noted, uh, survivor alumni, Jonathan Penner and directed by his wife. Oh, well now I'm looking forward to it. Um, he's a good writer. Uh, but, um, and also when we started this podcast, we weren't 
we weren't press. We were, we, we sort of, we needed the time to catch up. You know what well, I mean? And, and honestly, that's, that does come into play here because honestly, you and I and our LA contributors have access to screenings and have access just to even screeners screenings and then just seeing the movies in the theater yeah because the commercially. movies yeah the, the movies that 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 come out and and qualify for the, the the awards and stuff they play in los angeles yeah uh even if only for uh a week or so and they won't open in the rest of the country until uh, across january so it it, so our, it, it it started as being we were you know we needed the time and now yeah. i feel like uh it is in keeping with probably where most of our listeners are and our contributors. That's the other thing we, right. we do try to through our, our top 10, our tops 10 and our, and the BPs, we do try to involve as many of our contributors <laughs> as possible and not all of them live here or in New York. And so that gives us the opportunity to, uh, to have a more comprehensive, uh, top 10 and, mm-hmm. and BPs, uh, ballot. Um, and then also, you know, listeners, perhaps you are tired of hearing about end of the year stuff, but the numbers do not bear that out. It would appear no. you love hearing about end of the year stuff for a solid two months into the into the next year. Yeah, I mean, uh, award season is at this point nearly half of the year. It yes. pretty much goes from Telluride in the at the end of August to the Oscars at the end of February, and. Uh, I'm not complaining. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we at Battleship Retention tend to treat award season with the exact mix of reverence and disdain, sure, and uh, and and respect and and uh, dismissiveness um, and mockery that it all deserves. Yes, uh, but so, we also recognize that it gets clicks. So here we are. Right. Uh, I, I love it, uh, but I also don't take it too seriously at the same time. Scott, your thoughts on. Uh, Battleship Pretension's mode of addressing uh, the the end of the year. Too long, man. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I enjoy the numerous episodes leading up to you guys delaying uh, just watching some movies. Just watch, just watch the movies all by now. My top ten list is done. That's why we're here today. I, I don't know what your guys' problem is, but... <laughs> uh, there, are, there are a handful of major, to me, films that I still haven't seen i think yeah. you and i were talking earlier today i'm seeing aquarius yeah uh, gotta, i got i want to catch up on aquarius um there's um uh i still haven't seen always shine even though i have a screener uh, i'll definitely watch always shine before we do our top 10 top okay. 10 um but it's it's on my list of right what i consider major films no i hear you need to be seen things to come i haven't seen yet yeah no i i do envy your guys' prolonged schedule i was looking today at the movies i'd seen and realized that between the beginning of November and about Christmas, I saw like 50 movies. That yeah. was way too many. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I had school. Hey, I say this last couple of years and not, not this one, the last couple of years, I usually feel pretty good about my top 10 by mid to late January, right. as opposed to February. But this year between going to school and having a job, uh, I mean, listeners know that I didn't have much to contribute to the movie journals and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. except what I might have watched in school. But now this coming quarter, uh, school will be my job. So that's going to be very exciting. So uh, so I will have a lot more time to watch movies and you and I can talk at length about the Bye Bye Man, for example. All right. Um, So what we're doing now, we are kicking off our um, end of end of year uh, coverage, the same way we did last year. And then what I hope will be uh a a tradition going forward so we'll end 
before uh, Tyler and some other people do an Oscar, <laughs> uh, some of the people mean not me do an Oscars wrap up, yeah. which I considered sort of like the it's it's the that's that's like the post credit scene <laughs> for the end of the year thing, the Oscars, the actual Oscar episode, because we're not no longer contributing to the discussion of the best movies of the year. You're just talking about a telecast, right? Sure. But it is a telecast that people view as important. But don't get me wrong. La- last year was gold. The comedy team of Eakin and Brill went over very well uh, with I'm, people. I'm sure it did. Uh, I'll listen to it any day now. Um, but as far as our coverage, mm. it will end the week before the Oscars when you and I do our top 10. Indeed. Right. Or our two, our tops 10, yeah. uh, as you, as you would have, would, would style it. Um, but like, uh, like an Olympic relay team, right? Mm-hmm. We might be the anchor, but you want to start off with your essentially your next best, sure. Uh, Is it called an anchor and a relay team? Uh, the the pr- last person to go is the is the anchor and that's a good thing that's like a terrible term it's conf- for it's a confusing. team meant to go quite fast it, yeah. it is it is confusing right. yes now but, i would uh, like to see relay teams with anchors actually <laughs> attached to them the baton <laughs> sh- <laughs> so we're we're starting with the third member of battleship right. retention kicking this off uh getting us into uh high gear um starting things off with a bang so we're going to count down scott's top 10 films of 2016 um, with some fun stuff thrown in, such as Scott, what do you think is the worst movie of 2016? Uh, the single worst, I'd probably go with Patriot's Day, which you have rightly excoriated on the podcast. And I will add to that that uh, element you didn't mention, which is that they use real, actual camera footage that people, victims of the blast, took on the scene and incorporate that in what is otherwise supposed to be like a vaguely entertaining and thrilling film. And that uh, made me kind of sick to my stomach when I it's, found that out. And, and I know you and I have talked about this because yeah. it didn't bother me because I guess the way I think about it is if it were a good movie, then that would be justified. Right. And so I can fault the movie for being bad, but Peter Berg tried to make a good movie. And so I think his heart was probably in the right place when he chose to use the real footage. He definitely wants you to know his heart is in the right place for the entirety <laughs> of that film. But it's also just, it's a weird story to adapt into a movie. It's too much story for two hours, but it's too little for like a series or something. And so like a lot of scenes are very compact where they need to be longer or they just, the whole timeline doesn't make sense. Like you kind of want to see you know, the marathon site evolved from a celebratory thing to a, a terrorist attack to, you know, an investigative site. But that whole sequence is packed into like 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's too short. But then like everything else, the whole investigation is just like too long or too rushed or there's just a weird kind of ambly length to it. Um, so I'd say that's the worst. I mean, there's a lot of other films making an argument for its place. Uh, Captain Fantastic, which Josh reviewed well on the site is horrible uh <laughs> jack reacher never go back tom cruise lost his quality control x-men apocalypse uh, just the nadir of a bad franchise i also hated suicide squad along with everybody else uh the movie gold which david you talked about well on the podcast uh captain america civil war which was a mess and uh too late the wants to be tarantino terrible one take gimmick piece of shit okay <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I saw I saw it too late, but of course I saw it in 2015. Right, it uh, did come out this year, though. Uh, but yeah, it did get its actual release. Um, I'm not going to argue with it. But I, I didn't hate 
too late from the moment it started. <laughs> and I saw it about 10, 15 at night and I was like, this is going to be a long two hours. Well, um, <laughs> all right. So we got the negative negativity out there of the way. Go. Let's get into the good movies. Yeah, I actually saw more, even though I was trying to kind of draw back on the number of movies I saw, I ended up seeing more movies this year than ever before. Uh, it's funny how that happens. Um, and yet my actual top 10 list feels very kind of basic bitch, if you will. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the same movies that everyone else is celebrating. But I think we all picked a good slate of movies to gather around this year. But I did want to mention... Some honorable mentions, starting with the group of five kind of very estimable foreign language films that really should be on anyone's top ten list, and it's a shame on my soul that they're not on mine. Uh, In the Shadow of Women, Julieta, The Salesman, Elle, and Aquarius are all extremely, extremely good movies. Uh, Beyond that, I was quite fond of The Treasure, Light Light Between Oceans, rather. Uh, Kate Plays Christine, which has the best performance I've seen in any film this year, but just doesn't quite stick the landing for me. Uh, Rules Don't Apply, Pop Star Never Stop St- Never Stopping, which was fantastic. Uh, My Golden Days, Aphorim, The Fits, Everybody Wants Some, Deepan, Creative Control, uh, Morris from America, Valley of Love, Cemetery Splendor, Jackie, Arrival, and Hunt for the Wilder People. All very fine films that could go on someone else's list. What are you laughing about? I'm, I'm smiling. It's just, <laughs> I'm enjoying you're like blowing through these. Cause yeah. Hey, uh, you gotta keep it moving. But yeah, you're right. Because if you did it, <laughs> if you, it, this episode would be three hours, if I got to weigh in on every one of those, <laughs> yeah. most of which I uh, agree with, I'm very happy, uh, that you mentioned the light between oceans. Yeah, it's uh, great. Yeah. Uh, I think to, I think we, we talked about light between oceans. Was that last time you were on or two times ago? It was right after it had come out. You had seen it at that point. No, it was during the fall preview episode. You had just seen it like the day before and I was going to see it a couple of days later. Okay. Yes. Um, cause we talked about, uh, you know, you and I have had some big, some major disagreements on the podcast about, uh, certain movies and, and, and stuff. But, uh, one thing that you and I tend to have in common is, uh, an appreciation for, melodrama and romance oh yeah uh and uh i'm glad to see light between oceans on your honorable mention mentions uh and then lastly just should be a contender for best score i i uh, i contend yeah, but uh, i, I don't think it will be well i've got good news for you <laughs> we have our own awards and best score is one of the categories okay. so you can uh you can submit that and rank it very high and okay. it might it might help and lastly, I just wanted to mention a trio of extremely strange, but totally out on their own limb films that really thrilled me to no end. Uh, For the Plasma, uh, Cosmos, and Kaylee Blues. Uh, the first two you can see on streaming. For the Plasma is on Fandor. Cosmos is on Netflix. Uh, Kaylee Blues will hopefully come out on Blu-ray, I think, in April. Uh, but all three are completely like bonkers and totally operating on their own dimension, which I love increasingly. <laughs> And yet, as I said, my top 10 is kind of a basic bitch top 10. And I'll throw some other honorable mentions as I did last year in with them. If Fun. that's all right. All right. Okay. So drum roll. Imagine the drum roll in your heads. Yes. <laughs> none of us are going to do that. Yeah. Uh, leading up to number 10. Number 10 is La La Land, uh, a film that I was expecting to be my number one film of the year. And so, which I feel like as a result, I maybe don't love as much as I should. You're but saying I still... you were expecting going into it. Yes. Sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, before I saw it, I did expect it to be my favorite film of the year just because I love musicals so much. And I, it was clear that Damien Chazelle is operating in the same sort of venue of loving Stanley Donnan and Jacques Demy and all these great musical artists that I really adore. And he clearly shares the same affection. Um, I do think it has some problems, but I think its strengths are exceptional. 
This is going to be my, my question. Is it not your number one because it has, there are some things that kept it from, or are there just nine movies that you liked more? I mean, it's probably a little bit of both, but uh, I think it has a certain broiness that is, I, I think, on target in some ways, I think Ryan Gosling's character is perfectly off-putting, but the film also kind of assumes his point of view maybe a little too often, and... Damon Chazelle has a tendency with his direction. This was turned whiplash too of, as I think Glenn Kenny put it, making the difficult look difficult. He wants you to know how much work is going into everything. Hmm. And I think the strongest musicals kind of succeed by kind of floating and gliding along a certain tone they establish. If that makes sense. I, yeah, I, I, it makes sense, but I don't know that other than the, well, I can see that. Yeah. There's the opening. Right. And I guess there's the, the, the pool party, whatever that, not the pool party, but the, uh, the party, the, uh, it's a pool party. There's someone in the crowd. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's a nighttime party. The, the house has a pool. I don't think of it as a pool party because most people aren't in swimsuits. Yeah, but then, yeah, that's kind of the point at which when the guy like dives in the pool and then the camera swirls around and then there's fireworks, I was kind of like, okay, maybe one of these things would have been the right note to end on, but uh, it was kind of a little I, I liked all that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, the only, the only drawback for me is that... Um, like I'm a guy who will sometimes drive around listening to jazz, but I think I'm like, uh, like David Herman's character in office space who turns down the hip hop music <laughs> when the black guy walks right. past, I will turn down the jazz when pretty much anyone is in earshot because I do, so don't want to be that guy who likes jazz right. and like Damien Chazelle clearly is, uh, that's the only thing that's a little off putting is the, is the jazz talk. But I think they acknowledge that in Grossing's character and he is off putting to people and John Legend comments that he's like, thank God for John Legend's character too. <laughs> he says he's great, but he's a huge pain in the ass. And you're like, you can see that. Um, and I think the film's a little cannier than people are giving credit for. Uh, I think Gosling's performance, his line readings are off kilter enough that it kind of gets in that Jacques Demy mode of somewhat like a separation between the full indulgence, of the musical and kind of acknowledging the artifice of it all. He has some line readings that are just like bizarre. Like when he asks, uh, it, when he realizes that Mia Emma Stone hasn't seen Rebel Without a Cause, and he just goes, "Oh my!" Like that's a weird way to deliver that line. Uh, and so there are other parts though. like that that I, I think give it this kind of edge that people aren't quite giving credit for. And of course, by the time the bittersweet ending comes up in the huge finale, it's uh, thrilling. I mean, I've seen it three times, and I, every time I've liked it more. Uh, do you, you still haven't seen it, Tyler? Is that no, why you're being yet. quiet? Okay. Um, I also, I'm, I'm, there's a question that I have for the, for the room, but I'll wait until we're. Okay. Well, my, my, my last thing is, um, now I'm a person who moved, I, I've lived in Los Angeles for, uh, 11, over 11 years now. It's time um, to get out, man. What's that? It's time to get out. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, that's, that's my point. I hated it for a year and a right. half. Uh, and now it's my favorite place in the world. And I, um, am kind of obsessed with Los Angeles and its architecture and history and all the like weird little pockets. Um, do you find as an Angelino or at least a Los Angeles resident, do you think that the movie was helped or hurt by its, uh, being in love with Los Angeles? Um, I don't think the love quite comes, comes across. I don't think it, finds enough like very specific locations the one it does griffith's observatory like everybody knows it's that's not, not the like, only one it also has the colorado street bridge and it has the angels flight which is uh but a lot of these are like very small shots it's not like like what, i mean what about tonga hut 
you know? <laughs> Tonga well, Hudson Tonga, Tonga. Uh, Tonga Hudson and the Lighthouse Cafe, is that what it's called? Um, I don't know. Uh, where he goes to see the jazz. Oh, okay. Jazz. I think it's called the Lighthouse. I didn't know that was a real, is that uh, a real club? Uh, I've never been there. It's in Hermosa Beach, um, as is the the pier where he uh, right. dances with the, with the lady. I had to look that one up because I was like, I should know that pier. And the movie theaters in Pasadena. It's all these places that aren't in LA. That's very strange. Also is is closed. Uh, oh, okay. That, that's the other thing in the movie. Like they, they get to ride the angels flight, which you can't do. Right. Um, and they go to the Rialto, which has been closed for, uh, three or four years. Uh, now it does close in the movie though. So that's a little bit of poetry to it. Yeah. So is yeah. it more in love with the idea of Los Angeles or, uh, I think a little actual bit. Los Angeles? No, I think it's an actual, uh, okay. Los Angeles, uh, history to a certain, okay. uh, yeah, extent. the history more so, but I mean, to bring it back to like Jacques to me, when you watch young girls of Rochefort, like that's a place that's really invest a movie that's really invested in its place. Here, I feel like it's kind of the idea of L.A. more than the experience of living in it. Well, at least it's not Chicago that was shot in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. You had some alternates to. Oh, wait, no. I would tell question, question for yes. the room. OK. You were talking about pool parties. Uh, the term pizza party does not apply if you're a grown up, right? It only it is only for when you're a kid in school. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Like, like if I said, Hey guys, we're going to have a pizza party. You would look at me weird. You'd be like, so you just want us to come over and pizza will be there. <laughs> yeah. We'll have yeah, a regular I, I, party I, I, and pizza right. will be provided. I think I agree with your entire premise. Okay. Yeah. What if okay. at either of your workplaces, they said like, Hey everybody, uh, on Friday we're going to, well, the company will be paying for, for pizza for, for lunch. Would you consider that a pizza party? Probably not out loud. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would kind of at work because then the pizza is the reason you're gathering around. Right. Like, yeah. As an adult, you know, the pizza is like secondary to whatever you're doing. I sure. It's the same thing as a kid. Like, well, actually, the reason for the season. But I, I, would, my work, I would suggest that actually, regardless of what people might say, pizza will become the primary reason to be anywhere you are. OK, uh, though, ostensibly, it's like, no, I'm here to socialize with people. But in actuality, it's like, oh, boy, pizza. My, uh, my work has free bagels every friday morning but no one calls it a bagel party it's just friday morning bagels but i guess maybe because it's so regular yeah that's the thing yeah like when i was a a kid we had a when we had a pizza party it was like the highlight of the year never mind that i regularly had pizza with my family but for some reason like this is so out of context this is (laughs) school that just uh just got interesting all right. Uh, you had some other options. Oh, I just wanted to throw out a mention for Sing Street for obvious reasons. Another great, joyous musical that uh, when I saw it, somebody stole my sandwich before and I was still in a good mood after. <laughs> Wait, I want to hear this story. I, 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 I agree. Sing Street's really good. Did I not tell this on the podcast? I feel like I might have. But anyway, in case I didn't or in case people didn't hear that. Uh, yeah, I went to see Sing Street at the Sundance Sunset Cinema. Uh-huh. Um, my girlfriend got there, now fiance. Uh, she got there before me and foolishly i maintain left our sandwiches on our seats while she went to the restroom a crazy woman took this upon herself to take my sandwich and eat it right in front of me but she was crazy so i wasn't going to confront her uh but i was still quite pissed off about it but the movie's a blast so i was still in a good mood after see i i want to live in a world where you can leave your sandwich right it'd be great i don't know (laughs) but i mean yeah i guess you gotta protect yourself though and there's always you know people out there taking sandwiches yeah i mean i'd like to leave my car unlocked too but that's not gonna happen <laughs> uh it's something i was gonna oh yeah okay so your girlfriend is your fiance now that's right? correct i 
had this conversation with my wife the other day. It was like, if I'm telling a story that took place before we were engaged, this is driving me crazy already. <laughs> then shouldn't I say my girlfriend? And she's like, no, <laughs> like you're overthinking this. You can explain it up and down all day long, but just in the end, her Natalie's point of view is just say your wife, everyone will know what you mean. But there's also context. Like if you're telling a story about when you met up somewhere, no, uh-huh. And you wouldn't have been going like from a place of living together or whatever. Right. And it's like saying like my wife and I, you know, went on our third. I don't know. There, <laughs> right, there's yeah, some yeah, context yeah. where like suddenly you introduce my wife makes it sound like you guys are strangers and like living in a Woody Allen, Mia Farrow <laughs> situation. You live in separate houses. It doesn't make any sense anymore. Then girlfriend, now wife. See, that's what I'm going. Pretty with. much how it yeah. goes. Yeah. It's a lot of syllables, but honestly, like once you've been married long enough, just we have, the we have, more, well, and also we have more, <laughs> Jen and I have more memories as oh, husband yeah. and wife than we did as boyfriend and girlfriend. So just uh, got to wait it out. All right. Um, number nine, number nine is Patterson, the new Jim Jarmusch movie. Uh, I, one of the elements of La La Land that I didn't relate to so much was the emphasis on dreams and how everyone should go achieve their dreams and everyone should have a dream. And that's wonderful. Uh, Patterson is about a guy who doesn't have a dream, but still likes to create stuff. And I relate to that tremendously. Um, and I think for a lot of people who don't necessarily find their identity through their work, this is a really great relief of the film. You know, it's about a guy who just drives a bus and that's just what he does. It doesn't define him. That's not the end of the road for him. That's just how he makes his money. And then he also writes poetry, but he's not centrally a poet. He's also a bus driver and he's also a frequent patron of a bar. And he's also a lot of different things. Uh, but his creative life is just folded into all that. And that's a very refreshing portrait of the creative life that is very distinct, I think, from a lot of these like very dream focused and mission focused portraits of similar lifestyles. I wasn't a huge fan of Jim Jarmusch's last two movies, Limits of Control or Only Lovers Left Alive. But this was, I think, his best in at least since Broken Flowers, obviously, but maybe even since I don't, Dead Man or something. I think it's a really incredible movie. And he found kind of the perfect vessel in mean, Adam Driver to explore his idiosyncratic uh sense of humor and sense of drama and sense of life really. And it has a great bulldog, which is also a great bonus. And, uh, yeah. the sporting, uh, the main female role, I can't remember the actress's name, but she's gold shift Farahani. Yeah. She has been on most of my actress or supporting actress ballots. I think she is also quite incredible. Uh, we just talked about it on the movie journal. Know, so the yeah. listeners know how, how we, uh, how we felt. Um, but I also loved it for, pretty much all the same reasons that you did. Um, it might be his best film since dead man. Dead man is my favorite Jim Jarmusch film and remains. So. Yeah. Uh, same, but, uh, yeah, uh, I, I liked it and I'll repeat what I said on the movie journal that you just heard a few days ago. Um, even though I liked only lovers left alive, um, quite a bit, um, it's good to have a funny Jim Jarmusch movie again. It's the first funny <laughs> Jim Jarmusch movie since Broken Flowers. There were some good jokes in Only Lovers. I, yeah, you're right. There are. There are. It, it, this is probably more centrally a comedy, mainly because nobody dies. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I, I, I just I, I I respond well to Jim Jarmusch's sense of humor. And, yeah, for uh, sure. There's a lot of it here. Uh, along those same lines, it also mentioned uh, The Lobster, which I think is a very good film about identity and about the way we define ourselves. Uh, and Men Go to Battle, which is a fantastic Civil War mumblecore movie, which is something I never thought I would see <laughs> and which is totally hilarious and well worth checking out. Well, as Dave will be the first one to tell you, there is no such thing as Civil War movies. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's that, a dumb joke. Yeah, I just made. I'm sorry. Dumb joke because I'm fond of saying there's no such thing as mumblecore. Oh, okay. Uh, so Tyler threw me for a loop there, and the and, and the loyal listeners who also thought they knew where he was going. That was more explanation than that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, was that uh, number whatever's next? Number eight is The Handmaiden, uh, which is just flat out the most fun I had at the movies. It kept me guessing every and step of the way. By the way, very cute. This is two movies in a row that you and I saw sitting next to each other. Oh, yeah. Aww. <laughs> uh, I'm starting to think that's coloring your, your view. <laughs> David's beard, it really increases enjoyment of all movies. <laughs> That's why I said we should see more movies together at Sundance. You're like, no, we should cover as much ground as possible. And I'm like, I need the beard. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, but The Handmaiden, like, from moment one, it completely throws you off kilter at every turn. And it's just a blast to watch. And uh, pretty sexy, if I don't mind saying so myself. Uh, and Do you I, mind? I don't mind. I don't mind. Um, and it's also, I think, surprisingly romantic. I was surprised at how moved I was towards the end of the film, given how kind of trashy and pulpy it is for two and a half hours and how focused it is on the thriller elements it doesn't really develop the romance in any active way but by the end i was like eh, it's tugging on my heartstrings a little bit um and i think it's pretty attuned to the way that people act in new relationships in terms of adapting certain attitudes and ways of speaking that other people exhibit and then kind of using the thriller form to keep us attuned to the ways that we tend to look out and guard against uh, threats that we perceive or whatever in the course of developing a new relationship. And just the way that uh, the main character, the handmaiden uh, looks at the uh, count who kind of draws her into this whole scheme as he, his role kind of starts to diverge from her as she starts to look at him suspicion that's both driven by kind of survival and also driven by a romantic need to hold on to this relationship that she's developing. Um, yeah, I mean, Park Chan-wook is a hell of a director and yeah. this is just a blast to watch. Well, that thing, yeah, I also, I also loved it. Uh, and I'm, I want to just echo what you said about the, the, the romance of it. And it, it's like, Park Chan-wook is a director I already loved and then it turns out oh and he can also do this yeah, other thing totally. that I love because I mean it's not that there isn't romance in his other movies it's just that he his other movies tend to take their love stories as being poisoned before they even start you know either because they're i can't even think of any romance in his other movies well they're you know either because they're incestual right or because uh you know one of them's a vampire uh, or i missed that one i want to see that that. (laughs) that's a really good movie or um because they are incestual maybe (laughs) more than once um uh whereas here like there's certainly hurdles to, right. uh, in terms of the levels of deceit in the movie. But this is actually a movie about, I mean, to, to, to be reductive about it, it is a movie in which love conquers all. Uh, and, and that's uh, really, uh, it was a surprising move for Park Chan-wook to tell that kind of story and to, um, more than maintain his essential Park Chan-wookness. Yeah, and it toes a tough line of both acknowledging the transgressiveness of their relationship, especially in the time in which it takes mm-hmm. place, um, without making it seem like he's condemning it at all. Um, and that is in part because it is an incredibly kinky movie. Uh-huh. I think it kind of speaks to what we view in a modern context as more transgressive, not simply just sexual orientation and stuff like that. All right. Uh, and along those lines, another excellent thriller about a woman in captivity who has to uh, maintain friendly relationships with her captor. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane is a blast of a film. 
It is Agreed. a great movie. And it is like, <laughs> I, I need got, to watch it again. I, I got it for Christmas. <laughs> oh, excellent. Along with a number of oh. other movies. I think it's the one I'm most excited about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. What is the, um, what is the song in the the montage in Ten Cloverfield? I think, I think we're, we're alone, alone now. now. I think we're alone now. Yeah, I, I should have. That's was, a good trailer. I was having yeah. a conversation with uh, another friend, uh, um, uh, Sean, who I used to do previously on with about the best uh, needle drops in movies in 2016, which is yeah, uh, you know when uh, a recognizable song mm-hmm. like pop song is, is used. And I I came up with some good. There's a ton in 20th Century Women, and there's almost wall to wall in American Honey. But I should have mentioned. Oh, you should see Suicide Squad. You'd uh, love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, maybe not. Speaking of wall to wall needle drops, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane. I should have put that on the list. Uh, when I saw the trailer for Ten Cloverfield Lane, it was attached to 13 Hours, and it was I think before. The trailer had been released online, and the guy I saw it with was super pumped to see the trailer for Ten Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> Instead, the guy next to him, who we didn't know at all, decided to comment extensively on the trailer for The Big Short, which had shown right before that. <laughs> and so he didn't end up watching the trailer at all because this guy was going on about how they're all screwing our society. Oh, good. It was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> all uh, right. Number, whatever the hell we're on, seven. Number seven is, we just mentioned this, American Honey. Um, this was a film that I ended up catching at like 10 PM on the last night it was showing because it was, I'd been on vacation the week before and it didn't stick around in theaters for as long as I would have liked. Uh, but I'm so glad I caught it, especially in a theater because this is such a sensual experience. Um, just every shot and every turn of the performances is so attuned to the experience this young woman is having of breaking away from home and going out on this crew to sell magazines. Um, And I think that sensuality has made some critics kind of turn away from, I think it's cannier, more intellectual side. Like there's the scene early on the film where stars played by Sasha Lane is in a supermarket where she meets Jake played by Shia LaBeouf. And as they're kind of meeting cute, uh, the song, what the hell is that song? It's What's it called? Uh, I found love in a uh, found love place. In a hopeless place. Hopeless place. Hopeless place. And which caused you know much of film Twitter to be like, oh, hopeless place. Supermarket, get it? Um, which, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the film does have that layer to it, but it also is. I think that seems about the way that uh, Americans, in particular, kind of latch on to popular culture and use it to glamorize our lives, and hoping that some of the glamour of this like hit song will rub off on our own lives and seeing that reflected in seeing like this multimillionaire's pop hit as some reflection of our own uh, relationship experience. When in reality, the two experiences are completely divorced. I may be reading too much into it, but I completely think that Andrew Arnold is pretty attuned and uh, pretty keyed into certain American attitudes. She is an English director. I think she notices things that American directors would not. Um, but yeah, I, from that moment on, this is the shortest, maybe aside from The Handmaid, and the shortest two and a half hours spent in the movies all year. I just totally loved it through and through. Me too. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen it? Not yet. Yeah, yada. Resolved. American <laughs> Honey. We loved it. Um, and to go along with that, another beautiful film about a uh, sort of misbegotten romance, the Terrence Stevie's Sunset Song really should have had a more proper place in this top 10, but alas, there are only 10 thoughts. Uh, moving on to number six, Love and Friendship by Whit Stillman. Uh, this film I saw back in Sundance. This is getting into the section of films that I mostly saw uh, in January or earlier, which is a weird track record considering most people 
rightly considered the most better films come out uh, towards the end of the year. But I saw Love and Fringe back at Sundance and it came out in May. Um, and it's the funniest film of the year, I think. It's been a good year for comedy all around. I mentioned Everybody Wants Some in kind of the general honorable mention category and also pop star. I think there's been a lot of very funny movies, but Love and Friendship is wall to wall the funniest to me. Uh, Wit Stillman's facility with dialogue, of course, is well noted, and I think he finds in Jane Austen a lot of avenues to let that out in every way he could imagine, especially in Tom Bennett's performance, just every... <coughs> pose that guy strikes is funny. I mean, it's the support to me, the supporting performance of the year is him, but it's also, I think a pretty sweet romance by the end of it. Uh, I was really rooting for those crazy kids to get together. Um, and Kate Beckinsale too gives a magnificent performance. I think it's up with there with, uh, Caitlin Shield for the lead performance of the year. Um, you look like you're on the verge of saying something. Yeah. Cause I'm surprised. I mean, I also loved, uh, love and friendship, but, um, I wasn't rooting for anyone to get not, together. Not the, uh, not the daughter and uh, the guy? No. She's she's so nice, though. She deserves to have nice things. She's like 16 or something. <laughs> I guess it's Jane Austen times. It is times. Jane Austen times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's part of what I... Uh, uh, and maybe maybe I just disagree because you're messing with my uh, thesis statement for oh, the movie, is which is statement? that it's a uh, Jane Austen movie where all the romance is drained out of the love, or, or, or at least the relationships. That's the that's to me what i what i what i what i responded to in it is that everything uh, uh all the all the pairings uh and the courtship and all of that is um diabolical and transactional oh no i completely uh, disagree and i and i liked that that so much um and i and i to the point where i started to wonder if even the friendship part if uh you know we're we're seeing Kate Beckinsale, you know, play people left and right. And I think we're being shown, but here's her friend, Chloe Savini, that she has a really, uh, a real, um, uh, uh, connection with. And I started to even doubt that as the movie went on, like maybe Chloe Savini is just a pawn for her, uh, as, as well. And, well I, sure. and I liked that. Anything to do with Kate Beckinsale's character, I think is, I think you're viewing that in the right lens. I mean, her best friend is introduced as her like handmaiden basically to like fold her clothes. And since there's a question of friendship, there's you know, <laughs> no matter of wages, That's um, right, I forgot about which that. she repeats several times to increasingly losing <laughs> effect. Uh, but in addition to the two kind of younger protagonists, I also, I can't remember the characters names because I can't remember most of the characters names in this film, but there's the married couple who, the wife comments that her husband is, you know, endlessly amiable and always willing to do, you know, help for whatever. And then soon enough, he enters the room and she's like, I was thinking about a trip to London. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. OK, their relationship is very sweet. There's a lot of sweetness in this film. I'm not saying it's not sweet, but I think I think you can be uh, affectionate and still be playing the angles. And I, I, I still see that as her. She's in a way manipulating her husband. He's going along with it because he has affection for her. Yeah, but, but it's still they... about people using their ties of love uh, for personal gain or social gain uh, more than just for the sake of love itself. I don't. I don't see it as a romantic movie. I think that element is in there, but I, I think there's a good tension between the both of them. And in the case of that couple, I think they both know the score with their relationship and are both content with it. And that's that's his own kind of sweetness. I wish I had seen it because then I could uh, break this tie. It's on Amazon Prime, so you ought to. Oh, nice. All right. That's good to know. Um, and I, it's also just 
formally very fun by the time uh, there's a letter read where the words appear on screen, including the punctuation as the punctuation is being read. It's very, uh, I think, formally playful, most more so than yeah. I would have expected from Whit Stillman. I, I will agree with you that it is the funniest movie of 2016. Uh, though I will also mention another very funny movie about familiar attention. Tony Erdman uh, is mm-hmm. basically as good as I think as everybody's saying. I, I unfortunately, you know, I think the press stills they're putting out kind of ruined the scene, the film's two most ridiculous and ostentatious scenes. But otherwise, it, you know, it's well worth checking out. I, I, I would uh, agree. I'm trying to think of what uh, uh, I was going to say. Are you talking about these scenes? But then I realized that I know. Would be, I'd be part the, of the part of the problem. Few people who haven't seen the two images associated with the film that have been in every article about it. But whatever. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I also I also loved Tony Erdman. Uh, number five, another Sundance movie, uh, Certain Women by Kelly Reichardt. Um, and, and another one we watched together. Aww. <laughs> um, no, this one I, I was glad we did because you liked it immediately and I was a little less uh, certain, if you will, about it. Uh, but I saw it again in October and really, it really cemented for me, particularly the middle section with Michelle Williams, which is so... It's unusual to the point of you don't even know why it's in the film. <laughs> but I think there's... That really shows, I think, Kelly Reichardt's talent of drawing out a lot about the relationships between these people. Michelle Williams plays his wife who's trying to build uh, a new house uh, and her husband and daughter are kind of working against her purposes in various ways. And the way that uh, Kelly Reichardt and her cast kind of draw the tension in those relationships is not the way you see most familiar tension drawn is in a lot of glances and side comments, the way that it tends to be in real life, but which tends to be too subtle i think for most movies to try to tackle but i think it's very finely wrought and that's without even mentioning the final third of the film which the film is three completely distinct stories and the final third is i think rightly hailed as the most moving and Mm -hmm. developed of the they're not completely distinct well no there's overlapping characters but it's not like the events in one affect the other really i guess you could say maybe michelle Williams husband in the second section his relationship in the first section somewhat colors the way we see the second yeah but i even that's like but it takes on her point of view so fully that you kind of i kind of forgot that yeah uh, i completely uh, forgot about that person i was like wait a second that's that guy yeah um it's james the grow who i uh, i've always been a fan of um but uh yeah the the and uh, the other thing that connects them is the town of livingston montana right. that's they all take place uh, at some point at least right. in livingston <laughs> the last one completely outside of it uh until the end right, right? Exactly. yeah um yeah um but I, I also find the uh, I think I would agree with you. The the I mean, the first one is the one that g- grabs your attention because it's the one that has a gun in it. Um, the second one is the one that everyone seems to have the most struggles with. Yeah. And I think uh, more uh, discerning audiences find that uh, intriguing. And I think less discerning audiences and critics have described have dismissed the second segment <laughs> as being the most boring um, and then, yeah, the third one is the most, uh, yeah, moving to, to use your word. But I, I think, uh, I've thought about it more over time and I think that you've got, um, three different looks at it's, it's called certain women. I think you've got three different looks of women verses in a way, like, hmm. 
Laura Dern is women versus society, the man's world. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Williams, you've got woman versus her husband, essentially. And then in the Lily Gladstone one, you've got women uh, versus one another. I don't mean, ver- I, I shouldn't say versus. I'm kind of being don't cheeky. Don't pit women against each other. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of being cheeky and just there's that sort of like, um, the, uh, uh, the, there's the templates of stories for, you know, man versus nature, man versus right. self, man versus machine. I'm using verses in that point of view and that it's, um, uh, it's playing women off of different things. So Laura Dern is, uh, you know, facing institutions of the legal system and the, eventually the law enforcement system, at, at, at the end, um, and, and in the, uh, CODA or Denema or whatever you want to say. Um, and, uh, Michelle Williams is navigating marriage. She's essentially the, the whole story of her, uh, of her story is that she's, there's a transaction that she's driving, but she has to do it from the back seat, essentially. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. For like sure. James, the girl has to do the talking, but she has to be the one who's has the eye, uh, the eyes on the prize in terms of getting, and of course there's more going on there, uh, but I don't want to give that away. And then the third one is two women entering into a friendship, but with different expectations yeah. out of the friendship. And so you've got, those are the elements playing off one another. Well, and the third one's also very much about career and how one makes mm-hmm. one's living, you know, uh, Kristen Stewart's character is, as she remarks, the first woman, I think, to go to college in her family at all, or the first person to go to college at all, let alone become a lawyer. And she says that no one in her family is expected to do better than sell shoes. Um, (laughs) And she's clearly navigating the uncertainty of that environment. You know, when you're the first person in your family to to kind of break out of your social economic strata, you don't have a lot of guidance. And she's clearly struggling with, uh, honestly, just being made fun of at work. And I think a lot of that is because she's a woman. I don't think she would receive the same kind of treatment of having to balance two jobs in a way that just amuses her coworkers as she would if mm. given her present circumstances. And then Lily Glansett's character is a very traditionally masculine role of like a horse wrangler um, and completely isolated, but you know, probably faces similar uncertainties and difficulties and uh, conflict in that regard. Um, but as far as the second story goes, I think, the first story doesn't do it a lot of favors because it's so obviously tense and that tension somewhat uh-huh. carries over because of Kelly Reichert's visual strategy of kind of these longer, quieter shots where there's just kind of little things kneeling at the soundtrack. So I kept expecting some sort of more overt action to break out. So I think that a second viewing does help that second mm-hmm. section to know that, you know, no one's going to punch each other or whatever. <laughs> All right. Uh, and two other films that are also excellent triptych storytelling, Moonlight and Mountains May Depart. The latter of which is on Netflix, by the way. Mountains May Depart. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, I, Mountains Made Apart. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I, uh, Not made together. Yeah, it takes one to know one. I'm a mumbler myself, so. Uh, number four, another film that I saw way back when, this time at AFI Fest 2015, Our Little Sister. Uh, the not quite latest, but, you know, recent enough for the U.S., Hirokazu created a movie. Uh, he has another film coming out this year called After the Storm that I saw on the plane to Japan. That is also quite good. But uh, Our Little Sister is a really exceptional, very moving film about uh, these three sisters who then adopt this new sister who they didn't know about before um, into their lives, and they all live together in this very idyllic house. And it's just about them kind of 
getting to know each one another better and watching their lives at various stages develop and the uncertainties that come with living in your 20s or I think, yeah, the oldest character is probably in her late 20s, I would say, um, or in the youngest cases that probably in her late teens. Um, but just, yeah, I think it really finally brought the difficulties of family relationships, the difficulties of adapting to a new environment and the difficulties of, uh, how one associates oneself within and apart from one's family and finding kind of many units within that. And it's also, it's just a pleasure to watch through and through. And it has a very steely center of these women are in some ways kind of survivors of a rough unsupportive family structure, but they're finding ways to support one another regardless. And it's a very positive, sweet film. I agree. I, I, I also loved it. I, the reading, Reviews. I like to read, you know, reviews right. uh, after I've seen a movie. I especially like to read, to read reviews that feel felt differently about the movie that right. I did. And I've, mm-hmm. one of the main complaints was that there's a lack of conflict. But um, I um, don't necessarily think that's true, and I also don't necessarily think that's a problem. Yeah, uh, that's something Coriada gets dinged with a lot. I think, especially recently, um, somebody commented on after the storm that it really benefits from having at least one complicating incident, which is usually <laughs> absent from his more recent films. Um, yeah, but it's funny because I was introduced to him via uh, Nobody Knows, which is a, 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 an amazing movie, but uh, it's super dark. And yeah, that's I haven't so seen not his earlier like, work, but I understand it's a lot more uh, rot. Uh, yeah, yeah that's the, our little sister is definitely, even though it has some familial uh, conflicts, it's not, there's nothing dark about the movie at all. No, but I, I think that, like I said, that kind of notion that they're all survivors in a way of, and that they're all kind of, getting over, you know, kind of rough childhoods. I think that gives it a certain steeliness in its center that keeps it moving. Uh, now is your, your companion here. Is it going to be little sister? No, <laughs> I didn't really, <laughs> did you see little sister? Yeah, I loved it. Oh, I didn't really like it very much. Uh, I love it. You talk about needle drops, the Gore song, uh, in her performance, the Gore yeah, song that's pretty solid. is one of my favorite individual scenes of any movie this year. Uh, no, the companion I picked is another film about a young girl adapting to new circumstances, which is Steven Spielberg's the BFG, which I think got a really bad rap, but is an excellent, imaginative, very funny film. I didn't say, uh, okay. So I guess you're saying it's seeing the BFG is worth it. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, I was, I wound up, um, I had the option of seeing that on uh, the plane going to Minnesota I and I, plane. I, yeah, I opted for hunt for the wilder people. That's a great movie too. So I almost actually paired that in this exact category. That's very strange. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I have nothing to say about any of this because <laughs> I haven't seen these movies and I don't feel like asking questions about them because we have other movies to talk about. Well, I, I also, I had to... jury duty this morning and, I was, <laughs> and I'm really tired and the nap I took, uh, wore off about 20 minutes ago. Well, I just heard you've seen this next film. Uh, my number three is Martin Scorsese's silence. I did see that film. Yes. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm just being an asshole. Um, as with most Martin Scorsese movies, I am not surprised to see this one has been received, uh, bafflingly uh I, I think most people have completely missed the point on it uh which is not that you know scorsese is unflinchingly accepting of the jesuits point of view here it's about these jesuit priests in what era was it like 15th century 16th century japan 16th, 16th, 16th century 40s, japan yeah. Yeah. yeah so 17th century yeah 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 all right <laughs> um so 17th century right. japan uh they're on you know sort of a missionary trip and 
the deals with the survivals of both the missionaries and these small Christian communities at a time in which Christianity was outlawed in Japan and which the punishment for practicing it was extremely harsh, uh, mostly revolving around various forms of torture that are very plainly shown in the film. And I, I don't know what it is that makes people think that Scorsese is just automatically adapting to the Jesuits point of view, but he very blatantly lays out that they are definitely intruding in a foreign land and that their mission won't be successful even in the most basic sense of converting people, but in a larger sense of even maintaining one's faith. It's not a positive affirmation of faith at all uh, and deals with the doubts that one would uh, assume that would encounter on such a mission, um, including just the very fact of going on the mission at all. You know, the main character likens himself to Jesus in numerous times, and it's very much about the kind of headiness and, uh, pride that it takes to even embark on such a mission you know at, at the time they couldn't there were no comforts there were no host families you know they no. uh they lived in a shack and had to stay in there all day and then when they left they were probably going to be captured and tortured no. it's you know in a way i feel like um one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible is Jeremiah okay? because it's a guy who is told by God to say a lot of stuff and I think was even told nobody's going to listen to you, <laughs> but you still need to say it. Right. Um, and you know, I, I, I genuinely feel like Christians uh, need to read that book more often um, because we have, we are so goal oriented uh that like, well, th- I'm, I'm brought to this place to talk to these people, whatever it might be. Um, and we all know it's going to turn out great. Uh, why else would I be brought here if it was, if it weren't going to turn out great? And it's like, well, maybe it's about something bigger than that. But what I like about it is that about this film, and we were talking about it in the movie journal. So listeners already know what I, what I think of it, that it's, it is so much more complex than picking sides. Uh, and just when you think you are understanding things from the Japanese point of view, then somebody makes a point that like, cause they say, you know, f- your faith was, uh, was always going to wither here. And then someone says, well, you are killing it. You recognize <laughs> that, right? Uh, it was doing fine, uh, not fine, but it was doing well right. and starting to grow until you intervened and you're acting as though that intervention is not having an effect. But then Somebody says, yes, but what was growing? Was it actual, was it the Christianity you define or is it seen through this other filter? And it just builds on that more and more until there, I feel like there are no sides. Now, obviously we're going to side more with the people that are being tortured than the people that are doing the torturing, uh, just by our very nature. And I think that's where you find people that are, that are, uh, instinctively siding more with the Jesuits, but at the same time, philosophically, uh, which is, I think, what we are, the, the way in which people are going to uh, engage with the film, I think you find something that's much more complicated and, and looks at the idea of like faith through the filter of colonialism, through the fa- filter of nationalism and politics and power and personal validation. I don't know. It's... It is a, it, it's not a, at the moment, it's not as high on my list as it is on yours, but I do, it's, it's a film that I find myself thinking a lot about. It's only been a week since I've seen it, but I still, it's still very much uh, fresh in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I think that complication that you mentioned is exactly why I love it so much is that it's completely unresolved. It keeps the debate going 
you know, it's a two hour and 40 minute movie and keeps the debate going the entire time right up to the last shot, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, very unexpected for where the character is up until that point. Um, Just it keeps adding complications like the ones you mentioned and it never relents. And I, you know, I think it's Scorsese's best film in quite some time for that reason. I've liked most of the modern work. Um, It's not bad at all. I just think that this is the rare time when a filmmaker has been developing something for decades and you can feel that uh, development having taken place and you can feel that he's still been thinking about it. You know, I like gangs of New York, but you do feel that he settled on a way of seeing that story several years before he made it and was just trying to make that version here. It feels like he could still make a better film of this, you know, two years from now. And and a worse film ten years ago. Yeah, maybe it would still be. I'm sure it'd still be great. Right. But he there, wouldn't be as yeah. developed and wouldn't have spent so much time yeah. thinking about it. So you say it's his best in a long time. Best since I, I mean I don't know. I haven't seen like Bringing Out the Dead or <laughs> <laughs> we just just talked about this in the right. journal. Well, I say I, I say best since Goodfellas. Uh, as much as I like Wolf of Wall Street and Cape Fear, uh, but uh, Tyler's a big Bringing Out the Dead guy. Yeah, I need but, to see that. I need to don't see. Don't get me wrong. I still think I think I prefer Wolf of Wall Street to this film. Okay. Um, or at the very least, from a from a best standpoint, they're so different. Although I think time wise, they're about equal. Uh, <laughs> but it's you know two hours and forty five minutes spent in very different ways, but ways that are still undeniably Scorsese, which I kind of love. He loves him some pride. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I think this is a much better film than. Wolf of Wall Street, uh, in part because I think Scorsese is more invested in it, not only for the fate stuff, but he is so good at the camaraderie among men that mm-hmm. like the relationship between Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver is so instantly kind of laid out there and you really feel the connection between those two guys because Scorsese is so good at finding the ways that uh, men relate to each other, both yeah. emotionally, physically, intellectually, and yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, with that, I would also mention some other uh, grapplings with faith um, and uh, self-identity amidst uh, nature in general, I guess I would say. Uh, Terrence Malick's The Voyage of Time, Robert, Robert Eggers' The Witch, and of course, The Shallows. All right. <laughs> I was wondering when that was going to come up. Uh, yeah, I, I know that, uh, I don't know if you, I don't know which one of us likes The Shallows more. It's on. Well, uh, is, it on your, is it on your top 10? Because it's, it's obviously not, not on mine. It's not on my top 10 right, now, well, but it's higher than it probably would be for almost anybody else. But it's, it's so great. A select few people really seem to respond to that movie, and I'm surprised how much I responded to it. Wait, sorry, hang on. Given that it's about a killer shark, I'm not that surprised. <laughs> but given that there's so much, so much else going on uh, visually, uh, I, I I like it so much more than I thought I was going to. And then the witch is something that just continues to echo in my mind since I saw it. Yeah, the witch is the rare modern horror film that I feel has been aptly praised. I am not like as high on most like the Babadook or it follows like they're fine films, but I think the witch is as good as the genre heads are making out to be. Well, stay tuned in the coming weeks from David's opinion of the bye-bye man. (laughs) (laughs) Just tear this whole house down. All right. What's next? Uh, number two, Manchester by the sea. Oh boy. Um, What's number one? I want to (laughs) know. I can't wait. (laughs) Well, let's focus on this for just a second. Uh, another film that I saw back at Sundance and which I loved instantly. Um, and which I've only come to love more. I've seen it now three times. I can't wait to see it again because I know it's terribly sad and terribly tragic and, 
uh, terribly wrenching and I definitely tear up every time I watch it, but it's also quite funny and so well written that it's, I, I find it a surprisingly easy watch. Um, but Casey Affleck to me gives the performance of the year. Um, I know I'm not the only one saying that, but it's, I think also Kenneth Longren's, I don't know if it's as good as Margaret, but I think it's more kind of developed. I think he's got a finer visual eye than he had then. Um, it's been kind of excoriated for the violations of the 180 degree rule that does early on in the hospital, but I think moves like that disorient the audience in a very productive way. It's same with the flashbacks, which I think when they first start coming, I, I mean, when I first saw it, I was completely confused. I was like, wait, I thought the brother just died, but now he's alive in this hospital bed. But then you cut back to the elevator and you realize that it was just a flashback. Um, but I think those ways of disorienting the audience are, like I said, very productive. And I think Lonergan is a little bit more adventurous with his form than he has in his past two movies. Um, and I'm, I like this new development. I like that he's not just there to protect his scripts, um, but that he's really thinking through how to tell them as a director and not just as a quote unquote storyteller. Yeah, it's this is a uh, one that I've uh, unfortunately only seen once, but I love Kenneth Lonergan, and every time I watch one of his movies, I feel like I see more, I hear more. Um, he's, you know, I don't think of him instinctively as a master visual storyteller, but that's only because of what people, what we've all come to understand as like a master visual storyteller, which is a certain degree of for lack of a better term, showing us, uh, you can be very straightforward in your storytelling and be very precise in, in your visual storytelling. And while I'm not sure if I'd say that there's a precision to him, I think there's a, I think his choice of shots and choice of angle and that sort of thing is very considered and very, uh, maybe measured is a good way of, of describing it. And yeah, this film is a, and I don't think I, you know, I, how much has it changed since Sundance? Like how much stuff has been, stuff has been cut out, correct? That's what people are saying. I didn't notice any okay. changes at all. Okay. So, all right. That's, that is actually very good to know. Cause there's always this element where it's like, this movie's really good, but what could have been? Right. But it sounds as though it's, it's negligible. If, yeah. If there were any changes, it certainly didn't show. Okay. Um, and I didn't mean to make it out to be like, he's a master visual storyteller. I, I think stacking right. this film next to silence. I think you see sure. like <laughs> how much more evolved the storytelling can get, but I like Lonergan's sort of weird energy and his sort of restlessness, like the shot that follows his cameo down the street. There's no need for that, yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of unusual nagging. And you're kind of like, what's that guy's day been like? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's touches like that that aren't like developed or fully thought through, but they contain an element of inspiration in them. That's what I love. I, I can't not since I'd say Mike Lee can I think of a filmmaker who has such love for his characters yeah uh, and that love often manifesting itself as as unbridled honesty like I love this character enough to let them be who they are and it's every character yeah it's I feel like it's f- somewhat rare to find a character in his movies that he does not have some sympathy for. And so even, and I, I, I also find it interesting to see the characters he chooses to play. Yeah. Um, cause I feel like that's, it's worth noting. And that, that idea of like, what was this guy's, what was this guy's day? Like, I feel like he's the type of filmmaker that <laughs> he's like, I'm very curious what this guy's day is like. 
but we're not making that movie right now. <laughs> we're fo- we got to focus on these guys over here, but he does have a story to tell, which I think is what was, con- that's what I thought yeah. as it was following him, which is yes, he's being judgmental of these people. And, and, but the only reason we know that is because we are with these people, right? He could have come, who knows? Maybe he came from an environment where his, his parents were really shitty to him in public. And he's like, this moment struck a chord yeah, with totally. him and it's stuff like that. And even stuff, uh, like, and I'm not, I'm trying not to say this for, you know, uh, like personal reasons, but the idea of when Lucas Hedges is coming away from his, his mom's place and he's saying like, they were very Christian and he says it in a way that's a little bit derisive. And then Casey Affleck very quickly says, well, you know, we're Christian too. Catholic (laughs) is Christian. And it's, it's any, any opportunity that even when the characters, uh, can, openly mock uh another character and the film could be seen as being on their side like yeah they are pretty goofy right. someone else will come in either directly or indirectly and say well wait a second let's all let's let's take a moment and it's something that i've loved that he does he's i feel like he's a very fair filmmaker only in so far as giving everybody a chance not so much as in I'm going to treat every action as though it were equally good or bad. It's not that there are good actions. There are bad actions, but everybody is equally complicated. Everybody is equally good. Everyone's equally evil. It's it's, or it has the potential and it's, I don't know. It's uh He's an exciting, he's a very exciting filmmaker. Yeah, for sure. It's weird that the story didn't start out with him is something kind of pitched him by Matt Damon, but he very much mm-hmm. made it his own. Yeah. Um, and speaking to that kind of like complication of, you know, people acting you know in their nature but not always for the better um i think melodrama sometimes people have a tough time relating to it because these characters you know they live larger than life circumstances and the outline of this movie would suggest that there's a similar thing going on here where casey affleck has suffered so much tragedy that it's like i think for most people you could see that outline see there's nothing to relate to but i think the reason it struck a chord with me and probably with so many others is that that central tension of him trying to be better and knowing he could be better, but being unable to fully yeah. be better. I think that's something at some point everyone has to reckon with. Um, so the fact that they knew to focus on that emotion was the right call. And that notion of, you know, I'm, I'm, I gotta be careful not to dip into more than one lesson territory, but that notion of, I can't beat it. Yeah. Um, is so resonant because everybody probably has something they can't beat. And it's because we're standing on the outside we see so clearly that he has an opportunity not to make things better, but he's being presented with an opportunity to redeem himself in a very specific type of way. And he just can't let himself embrace it. And we're just like, Oh, this is so, this is so obvious to everybody watching. Uh, but he just has enough of his own stuff. And I feel like for me, it, it made me look inward and think like, okay, hang on before I judge this character, once again, that the Lonergan thing, like before I judge this character, what are the things in my own life that I can't beat? And if anybody were watching the movie of my life, they'd say, come on, man. Like this is very obvious to me standing on the outside. Oh yeah. I mean, I think there have been things in my own life where I knew what the right decision was, but you know, couldn't do it for whatever or wouldn't or, you know, just whatever reason just couldn't follow through. And while I like to think that, uh, I would make a different choice than Casey Affleck's character in that extremist scenario. You know, you, you never know. And there are yeah. other scenarios where I could probably do something to vastly improve somebody's life that I just didn't take for one reason or another. Yeah. All right. Um, 
not not any insight just it just occurred to me and forgive me if i'm forgetting someone but are the only actors in all three kenneth lonergan movies matthew broderick and kenneth lonergan <laughs> are uh, they the only ones who are in also all three i think so You're probably right i think that's about right that's funny all right uh quickly pairing with those other good films i think about uh the way people uh process trauma uh billy lynn's long halftime walk got kind of a bad rap but i think is especially in the 120 frames per second frame rate uh is really exciting filmmaking uh and then the edge of 17 which is a very funny movie that is also low-key about depression mm-hmm. great movie uh and so it comes to number one number which, one imagine a drum roll two drum rolls in one episode no, i don't know it's too much it's not um, enough. We should have been doing... <laughs> for every, people should have imagined drum rolls for every number. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this was another film that I saw at AFIFS 2015, and at the time said was the best film I'd seen since The Master, and has remained so. Uh, Chantal Ackerman's No Home Movie, which is the documentary she made. Loosely about her mother, she, it was just footage that she had been shooting for years uh, that ended up incorporating the time immediately preceding her mother's death, and so that's kind of the form the film took, was the final years that she shared with her mom before her mom passed away. Uh, and the film starts with an image of a tree. I think it's in Israel where some of the film takes place. Um, just being battered by the wind in such a frail tree that seems like it's going to blow down at any moment, but the shot goes on for four minutes or whatever and keeps standing. And I think that resilience, uh, is something that Ackerman always displayed as a filmmaker, um, constantly trying to do, completely independent work or completely work on her own terms um, and constantly trying to hold up against various elements, industrial, societal. Um, She's constantly navigating her identity as a woman, as a Jewish woman, as the child of uh, Holocaust survivors, as a gay woman, as all these different things. Um, But that resilience kind of defined much of her work. And I think this is one of her most moving films and really, uh, very haunting, very sobering look at uh, the difficulty we have relating to our parents, even as we age proportionally closer and closer to them. Um, we still kind of remain children in their eyes and in our eyes towards them. And uh, it's a heartbreaking film, in part because Chantal Ackerman herself passed away shortly after the film premiered. Um, and it was unfortunate at the time that I think at its premiere when she was still alive, the film didn't quite get the notice that it probably should have gotten right away. Um, but I think since then more people have caught up to it and it's really just a monumental piece of work and the finest, like I said, finest film I've seen in many years and, uh, certainly the finest documentary I've seen. And I don't even know how long and it's the kind of very explicitly personal filmmaking that I'd like to see more of where it's entirely Ackerman's cameras and she, defines every setup. She's her own cinematographer. She decides what's in and out of the movie. There's no mission statement going in. It's just trying to find some purpose throughout, you know, her mother asks her at one point why she's filming some mundane conversation of hers. And, you know, she says that everything should be captured or I think it's over Skype. And she wants to show the connection between people over distances in the modern age. Um, and that connectiveness with her audience, I think, has been, like I said, pretty key to Ackerman's work, um, even though she makes, you know, in some ways, very distancing work. They're very long films with very long takes and very slow, but well worth investing in. And it's an incredible, incredible film. You can watch it now on Fandor or on Filmstruck if you are so inclined. 
fantastic. Very do you have exciting. companions for that one, or is that I do have thing? a companion for that. It's uh, another film about mothers and daughters called The Meddler, um, oh. which is an exceptional comedy. Um, yeah, and really, I think in some ways, just as unpredictable as No Home Movie and its movements. There's any number of scenes which I wouldn't have expected going into the film, and any number of jokes, just as simple as her trying to board a flight, and uh, she says something. Like, oh, yeah, she was visiting her daughter in Los Angeles. Uh, her daughter is developing a TV series. And so the uh, person at TSA asks her what she was doing in L.A. She says, oh, I'm shooting a pilot. Um, <laughs> and it's a two second scene that affects the plot. Not at all. But uh, it's touches like that that I think really made the film so exciting. Um, now, did you have more to say about The Meddler? Because uh, I know you loved it. I, I'll, I'll have things to say about it in a couple months. Sounds good. All right. Um I want to mention one more thing, though, uh, yeah. because we've uh, I, I I didn't know that no home movie. I haven't seen no home movie, but um, we've given you trouble in the past about <laughs> not liking documentaries. Yeah. But here you picked a documentary as your number one film of the year. You also briefly mentioned Voyage of Time. Yeah. Um, any of the documentaries that stand out to you th- this year? Camera person, OJ, Fire at Sea. I didn't see Fire at Sea. Camera person. I feel like I should see it again. It didn't immediately strike me as, as, as major work as people are making out to be. And I think some of the praises I've read of it run a little bit of the kind of, uh, cinephile armchair intellectualism that kind of bothers me one time, a lot of the time of like, Oh, excuse me. No, no, no. I'm just assuming you're talking about me. No, I'm guilty of the same thing. (laughs) I, I haven't actually heard or read, I haven't read your review yet, which I should. Um, but just like these notions of, how one holds the camera. Does it affect the world around it? I'm not terribly interested in those discussions. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I think it's strongest connection is just as a memoir. Um, but I'm, I didn't find it fully accessible in the same way that no home movie is, uh, along those lines. Um, so I don't, I'd be interested to see it again, but it didn't strike me as, as major work as others are seeing it. As for OJ made in America, I think the fifth part is exceptional. I think everything else is, either really rushed through or intensely belabored. I mean, how many people need to comment that the uh, Bronco chase was this crazy moment in society when we all know that before we even started watching the documentary? <laughs> well, I uh, agree to disagree uh, <laughs> on that. Thanks. Why don't you like documentaries? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think I forgot. Um, no, I, I, the thing with documentaries is if I feel like I could just get as much of it at, from reading a really good article, mm-hmm. I don't really see or what's so exciting about them. Um, so the kind of, like I said, first person really kind of embedded ingrained documentaries. They do excite me, but it's not. like super size me. You're a big fan of super size me. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, that's a good mode. It's just a shitty subject. Who cares? Um, but so yeah, I, the documentaries I like, I really love, but I, I don't think there are that many that are really doing something interesting with the form, I guess. That's interesting. I guess that's pro- I guess that is probably true. There is a, a there's a lot of potential for them to be not not necessarily lazy, but content. There's a lot of contentment, which is like we have a subject that is fairly interesting, at least to a select number of people. Uh, we have a lot of people speaking authoritatively about it. I think we're good. Yeah. Um, and there's a tendency, I think, just by the nature of the forum, to take people at their word in documentaries where. I mean, to me, receiving information is the most boring part of any movie. Um, So if all the person appearing on screen has to contribute is, you know, imparting this information, then that's not 
great cinema to me. I, I like documentaries where the people being interviewed are themselves also subjects and we're meant to read, you know, the way they're presenting that information. But if it's just an onslaught of information, it's like we can, we can do better. You know, there's an unfortunately titled documentary called Michael Moore Hates America uh, that is so much better than that title. Oh, that's good. Deserves. And, and it's, it involves this guy who does not like Michael Moore and he doesn't like his, his manipulation and all that. Right. And he decides to make a documentary about that. And in doing so, he finds himself falling prey to the same types hmm. of manipulation. And his producer says, well, you recognize what you've just done here. And he says... Oh shoot. Yeah, I guess I have. <laughs> and his inclusion of that, like it's, he, he goes on a personal journey yeah. in making the film. And there comes a moment when he's talking with Albert, uh, Maisels, and that's how you say that, right? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and he, when he's telling him the description of his, of his movie, he leaves the name out because he doesn't want to, you know, uh, it's an inflammatory right. title. And, uh, it, and then afterwards, that's when the producer says, you left the title out. Why did you leave the title out? And he says, well, because I didn't want to affect. He said, well, the guy should know you are you are manipulating your subject right. by not telling him. So they're like, all oh, right. So he films himself going back to Albert <laughs> Maisel's and saying, like, the film is called Michael Moore Hates America. And then there's a pause and Albert Maisel's goes. I think he does. <laughs> and he, goes, he goes, and if he does, then there's your title. And it's, it's, it, it's actually, it is unfortunate that that is what it's called because it's right. actually one of the more introspective documentaries I've ever hmm. seen. Maybe I'll have to check it out. It's pretty good. Let's all check it out. Indeed. Uh, thanks Scott for, for gracing us with your, with your list. Thanks for indulging me. This was a, a fun time, especially since I'd seen almost all of the movies. <laughs> yeah. I just sat here <laughs> that reflecting on jury duty. That would have been <laughs> equally fun. Uh, not Tyler, you know how I feel when you and West talk about scores. You have, we send you at the very least <laughs> the tracks, the tracks that yeah. we're going to be talking about. I know. And I, and you guys I didn't send me shit. That's right. Um, you didn't send me no home movie. Uh, all right. Don't send me, don't send me no home movie. Um, you can find us including reviews of a lot of these movies, uh, at battleship You can email uh, me and Tyler to David at battleship or Tyler at battleship You can follow us on Twitter at Davy pretension or at Tyler pretension. Uh, Tyler, anything going on in more than one lesson this week? Uh, as you and I talked about last week, uh, during the movie journal, um, my episode about Sully has posted, yeah. uh, in which we talk about it with a companion film, uh, United 93 and it's a good conversation. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Okay. Um, Scott, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, on Twitter at rail of tomorrow and at battleship pretension.com, of course, and at criteriancast.com tomorrow. But we... mostly battleship pretension.com. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so most importantly, wh- like which one are you like editor at large for? Uh, that's just battleship. Pretension, All right. Then, just making sure. Uh, tomorrow at criterion cast, we'll be going over our favorite criterion releases of the year. Um, but before that episode goes up, I might even be on this podcast again. So I might be, you know, uh, pimping the same thing next week. Right. Yeah. Oh, I should tell you, um, I mentioned on the podcast a while ago that, uh, um, a, a, through my job that I don't talk about what my job is, but there was a, but uh, you mentioned every time you mentioned your job. Uh, yeah. Because I feel like 
new listeners might not know, uh, but I don't want to talk about what my job is. But I mentioned that I was emailing with a person at a company that I do work with uh, in the in the UK, and he knew the show and knew who I was. And he recently asked me, "When is Scott going to be back on the show?" Oh, it's nothing but Scott in January. So that's (laughs) that's what I tell him. If if you're a Scott fan, uh, January is the month for you. So uh, we'll see you uh, again next week, Scott. Oh yeah, Uh, and you at home. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 